I'm Ingrid Busson-Hall. And I'm Kathleen Merrigan. Welcome to This Is My Silver Lining, the show where we pull together the strongest threads of our humanity, courage, kindness, compassion, and gratitude. Our guests explore their toughest moments and how rising to the challenges led them to discover unexpected opportunities, connection, and community. Welcome to part four of our series, highlighting stories of the achievements and challenges faced by some of the most distinguished women judges in our history. We're delighted to be joined once again by Lauren Raclean, editor of the ABA's recently published Her Honor, Stories of Challenge and Triumph from Women Judges. We're also deeply honored to welcome today's guest, former Chief Justice Peggy Quince of the Florida Supreme Court. Raised by a single father in Virginia with her four siblings, Chief Justice Quince learned early on what it means to be treated unfairly. In 1954, when Peggy was just six years old, the United States Supreme Court unanimously held that the policy of separate but equal, which had justified segregation in schools, was unconstitutional in the landmark case of Brown versus Board of Education. For a young Black girl in the South, the decision had little practical or positive impact on the course of young Peggy's education. Many white schools actively resisted efforts to integrate, with some shuddering for years to avoid it entirely. But it may have kindled a young girl's desire to participate more fully in the realization of justice and fairness for all. Peggy's father, Solomon Quince, who hadn't had the opportunity to complete high school himself, was bound and determined to afford his children an education. While her school was under-resourced and her teachers underpaid, Peggy recognized the good fortune and importance of having teachers who believed in her abilities and her potential. She excelled at school. Upon graduating from high school, Peggy was offered scholarships and chose to attend Howard University in Washington, D.C. There, she studied zoology. But she was inspired by the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and began to think about a possible career in the law. She was accepted to both law school and medical school, and the law won her heart. She attended Catholic University staying in Washington, D.C., and while there, she was inspired by many professors and friends, some of whom became lifelong mentors, including her classmate, Fred Buckine, who she would later marry. Upon graduating, she became a hearing officer in D.C.'s Rent Control Office, the first of many public service roles. With her mother-in-law in poor health, her young family relocated to Florida. And after sitting for the Florida bar exam and a brief stint in private practice, Peggy joined the Florida Attorney General's office, where she served for 13 and a half years. In 1993, she was appointed to the Second District Court of Appeal, and then, in 1999, she was appointed as the first African-American woman to serve as a justice on the Florida Supreme Court. From 2008 to 2010, she served as Chief Justice. In celebration of her retirement from the Florida Supreme Court in 2019, family, friends, colleagues, and sorority sisters gathered at the Florida Supreme Court Historical Society to pay tribute to her for her service on the bench. Among the numerous expressions of intense gratitude for her grace, humor, and humility, and the example she set, one really stood out. Her friend Roberta Walton said, quote, Peggy, you cast a light in this world. You never make anyone feel small, end quote. Chief Justice Quince, we're so honored to welcome you to This Is My Silver Lining. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So as you know, our podcast, um, we love to hear stories about how our guests have overcome obstacles and found silver linings along the way. And Chief Justice Quince, in your essay, In Her Honor, you say that you have been fortunate to be in the right place at the right time to encounter those who can help us when we need it most. Life's journey is never taken alone, and we must embrace the angels, mentors, and friends that we find along the way. 
I'm wondering how have those angels, mentors, and friends been silver linings during challenging times in your life? There are so many examples I could give you that (laughs) you don't have enough time to hear (laughs) Just beginning when I was in elementary school, for example, my father, as you said, was a single parent raising five children, essentially alone. And often we would have field trips that our uh, school would go on. For example, we would go to Williamsburg because uh, it's a historic place, or Jamestown, a historic place. My father often could, could not afford that. Even though it may have seemed like a small sum, it was more than he could bear. And they're invariably a teacher mm-hmm. who was also underpaid and overworked, uh, would offer to pay for me to go on that field trip. And, and it was, there were so many examples of that, that it just, I have, it has, it has left really a warm spot in my heart for teachers. I just think that they go above and beyond. Even today, teachers use their own funds to do bulletin boards in their classrooms and, and, and things like that. And, and it, I just believe that those are the kind of angels that we need, we as a society, be, need to be more appreciative of. And if we were more appreciative of them, we they would have salaries commensurate with the obligations that they have taken on, the students that they mentor, the time they spend not just in the classrooms, but outside of the classrooms. And those teachers have been silver linings in my life from the beginning to the end. I cannot tell you enough about how, what deep respect I have for the teachers in our school system. I couldn't agree more. And it's obviously made such an impact on you that you remember every instance like that, um, you know, that someone helped you in that way. It makes such a difference to know someone cares and they want you to succeed. Exactly right. Speaking of someone who was um, intensely focused on your succeeding in life, can we talk about um, about your dad, Solomon Quince? He um, raised you and your four siblings alone and education was of paramount importance. I think you said that he would constantly reaffirm to you that school is your job. Can you tell us about him and the impact that he had on your life and the the values that he instilled in you and your siblings? I certainly can. Uh, you know, he was so, not just to me, but even the, the children that I grew up with and their parents all really had a deep respect for my father because that was his mantra in our house, that going to school was your job. We grew up in a a rural area. And a lot of the young people would uh, be taken out of school at various times to work in the, in the fields, to harvest uh, whatever was being harvested at that time. My father said, no, you cannot miss school to do any of, of, of that. You could do that in the summer, And I did do that in the summer sometimes just to have some uh, money to play with of my own. But during school time, nothing was more important than you going to school. And and I don't know if I said it in her honor, but we had to go Mm -hmm. to bed at 830. There was only one excuse for not going to bed at 830 Sunday through Thursday. And that was you had homework that you needed to finish. But he wanted to make, he would make sure that you had started that homework (laughs) and not waited until eight o'clock or close to 8.30 to start that homework. Because he really believed that education was the key to advancement for Blacks. Our job was to go to school and make good grades. And he, there was no excuse for not doing so. And he, he just believed, uh, especially if when Brown versus Board of Education was decided, that 
we were just on the path to advancement. And uh, I believe he was probably more disappointed than any of us when it took so long to truly implement uh, Brown versus Board of Education. When we had cousins who actually lived in an area of Virginia where they closed the schools rather than integrate. And they had their family moved essentially to New York because of that. And so he was, he probably was more disappointed than anyone I can think of when Brown was not something that happened right away because I was in the first grade when it happened. And it was not until I was in the 12th grade that I was given the freedom of choice. I could either continue in the high school that I was in, or I could go to the high school that was closer to where I lived. And of course, I chose as a senior in high school to complete the high school that I was in. And I, But I do have a brother who went to the high school that was closest uh, to us. But my father, you know, there was, there was just no excuse for not going to school. And if you said you were sick. You better be sick. <laughs> you better be sick. <laughs> you were sick because you were in bed. You did not feel mm-hmm. better in an hour after the school bus left. You, you, had, you had to be sick. And so I very rarely used that as an excuse. First of all, I loved going to school. I loved being around all the other students in my classes. And so I liked, I liked school. So he didn't have that kind of problem out of me. Lauren, I'm wondering, um, when you were putting together these essays, did you see that as a common theme? Um, just that the emphasis on education by the families of the, of each of these, um, amazing judges. Yes, very much. So it was, um, Peggy's was, quite strong, you know, on the spectrum of it being um, addressed of education in, in, for many of these judges. It was, it was a very touching part for me of, the, of reviewing all of these to, to hear about and learn about the family connections and the important role that parents and often fathers uh, played in, in this. Um, and I, I, I say that just because I sometimes think fathers get short shrift in So it's, uh, you know, it was wonderful to hear. I appreciate you saying that, Lauren, because I think it, um, you know, as women, we, um, we know the, the challenges and the opportunities that either lay open to us and are still sometimes very difficult to attain. But yeah, dads are really important. And I think there's this misconception that, you know, if you're, you're a feminist, if you're pro women's advancement, then you're, you know, somehow against men that just doesn't resonate for me. And I gather for any of you, it doesn't make any sense. This is all about the rising tide lifts all boats and men are such an important part of, of our advancement. Just to say real quickly, because I do think this is so relevant and important, especially to Peggy's story. In my very first job out of law school, I had a, uh, my very first boss was a, uh, turns out by practice, she was not a lawyer, she was a psychiatrist. Um, We were working in judicial education. And at one point, she looked at me and she said, you must have a really wonderful relationship with your father. Hmm. And I said, well, I do. Why, why are you saying that? And she said, because you have so much self-confidence and fathers are so critical to the self-confidence that their daughters express. And that really stayed with me. First of all, because it was true, but because I've seen it uh, now that, you know, as I became, as I was aware of it and watched it, it's really, really true. And, and that's why Peggy's essay so touched me and resonated with me. I, mean, I had an awesome mom, but I loved that part about her dad's role. And really, dads, to me, are critical. I mean, even with my husband and my girls, he was their hero. And he taught them that they could do whatever they wanted to do. And so I, I you know, 
because I am somewhat of a feminist, I guess, does not mean that I don't appreciate and embrace the role that men have in our lives and in our children's lives and in the world. Well, um, staying on that point with about your daughters, was there ever any piece of advice that you gave them that they've, that they've said was particularly helpful? Or how did you carry on that focus maybe on education or on other values that your dad instilled in you um, and your own daughters? Well, I try to instill in them the same values of education, that it, that it is critical that getting a high school diploma was, was not it. You had to go to college. And so my kids, my uh, two daughters grew up knowing that they would have to go to college. But the one thing that I think that I told them and I hope resonated with them is that you have to find your own path. Your father and I are lawyers, but that's not what you have to do. You have to find your own niche in this world. You have to find what you are interested in and good at. And that's what you do. So don't worry about and try to compete with your father and I. That's not what life is about. Life is about you finding your way, your path. And it can be completely different from our path. That's so beautiful and important. Can we stick on that theme of sisterhood? Um, you are a very proud member of Alpha Kappa Alpha. Can you tell us about the role of this sisterhood um, in your life? It has been um, sort of a mainstay because, you know, we move around in the United States. Very rarely do you have someone who has lived in one place all of their lives. And as I have moved from one place to the other, I haven't moved that many places, but the places that I moved to, immediately I had a sense of community because there was an Alpha Kappa Alpha chapter there. And so I had friends right away. I had uh, places I could go right away. People who could direct me what to do and where to go and what's the best restaurants and even something as simple as that. And so there were always people. And so it also morphed into there was always community activities that I could get involved in because on the graduate level and even somewhat on, on the undergraduate level, the sorority really is there to help people in the community. They have so many programs that are an outreach to the community. So I always had an opportunity to help the community. Even now, I am uh, the president of our foundation, which is, of course, a separate entity from the sorority itself, but it was begun by members of the sorority. And we do programs like STEMS. We have a program for middle and high school students. We're starting a program for seniors, which I plan to take because I am not <laughs> computer savvy myself. But I think I spent too many years with my uh, judicial assistant putting the PowerPoint <laughs> together for me and those kinds of things. And so I don't really know how to do them myself. But the community activities helped me through the years, even when I, uh, on the bench, because I certainly did not have time to go out and find opportunities to help the community. But the sorority was there and had programs that they had already set up. And I could, in my spare time on the weekends, participate in those programs and give back to my community. So not only was a sorority a sisterhood, it was also a place where I could give back uh, because I truly believe that to whom much is given, much is required. And I have really been truly blessed in my life. A little girl growing up in poor in rural Virginia to become the chief justice of the Florida Supreme Court have been given much. Can we spend a little time talking about legacy. 
a little over a year ago, Ketanji Brown Jackson was confirmed by the U.S. Senate as the first woman of color to serve as a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. You have said, it's not important that we became a first. It's important that others come after us. And you've been the first woman of color in many things, including, as you just said, the first African-American woman to serve as Chief Justice on Florida's Supreme Court. Over the course of your career, you've mentored countless lawyers of color, both men and women. I was touched to see that, you know, when you, for your investiture in 1999 uh, to the Florida Supreme Court, you chartered a bus of Sunday school students to have them come and see that moment, which was so significant in your life and for your community and for those young children to see that. What does it mean to you to ready the path for those that will come after you? And also, what role can each of us play in reaching back as we rise? I think we have to remember that not everyone has the opportunities that we have been given. And so it behooves us to try to make sure that others do have that opportunity. And, and I want to uh, clear one thing. I didn't actually charter the bus. The church actually chartered the bus. I, I uh, attended prior to moving to Tallahassee. The church I attended in Tampa was a wonderful church. And they also believed in education and they believed in letting the young people see living examples so that they know that this isn't out of reach. This isn't someone that you just see on television or hear about, but this is someone who was right there in the same church with you. And so I think that makes a real difference when you are with those people and they see you, you know, take another step forward they can truly understand that it's possible, that they are not necessarily hindered by uh, their gender or their race or whatever other issues there might be. And so to me, it is vitally important that you make sure that uh, the people in your community see you as a real person and not someone on a pedestal that you uh, say, well, I can't be like her. Yes, you can be like her. You were just, we were just sitting next to each other in church a week ago. Uh, And so I cannot overemphasize again how important it is that we let the younger people know that we are there for them. Take them under our wings. I've mentored not only lawyers of color, but I am, I mentored white lawyers also because I had staff attorneys in both positions that I had in the judiciary who were white young people. They need to be mentored also. And so I believe that it is my, I I have an obligation to do what I can for any younger person who needs some assistance. And that's what I have tried to do. What do you think on the flip side of that, if someone was looking for a mentor, what advice do you have for a young person who's looking for someone to guide them or, you know, just to show them an example like that? Well, uh, you know, I would just go to any person that I know that's in the field that you are interested in. And if they can't do it, they probably know someone who can. You know, some people have other obligations and can't take on another one. For example, I, someone asked me recently to do something for them, and I, I really did not have the time or the resources to do it. But I t- sent them to someone that I believe might have the time and the resources. So that's what you do. Even if I can't do it, I can find someone who can do it for you. So I would suggest that any young person who's looking for a mentor, that they Call someone they know, and they will put them in touch. Now, here and here we also have a couple of big law firms have done a, what they call a minority mentoring picnic for law students, and so they can go to this this picnic and find a mentor there. 
it's really a, a, a wonderful program. They do, they put this on every year. And so it's an opportunity for young law students uh, to find someone who will help them during law school and even after law school, once they're out in the practice, because law really is the practice. And you can't come out of law school, you do not come out of law school knowing how to do it all. And you certainly need someone to help you navigate. And I especially tell uh, young people who go out there and hang up a shingle that they need to have someone, they could, someones actually, that they can consult with because it is so easy when you are starting out to really take on obligations that you are not equipped to take on. And so you need to have someone you can pick up that phone and say, look, I need help. Yeah. Can I pick off of that? And I I think you'll agree with this, Peggy. The important thing is to ask for the help. And so often, and I, I would say perhaps especially when someone is young, either in law school or just starting out, I will say this is some years ago, but I certainly felt this way when I was fresh out of law school. I was so nervous to ask anyone for help, right? And why would anybody spend time with me? They're so busy. They're so important. And the important thing is to ask. And someone can say no, or frankly, they can ghost you or what have you. You just go on to the next one because a lot of people are just, you know, waiting for that ask and more than happy to offer that mentorship and guidance. That's so true. Because I look at the profession as, as a whole. When one person gets into trouble, the public and the public hears them, it, it reflects on the entire profession. And so if I can help someone navigate and not get into those treacherous waters, then it's my obligation to do so. You know, if I can just add something, because I think you've touched on so many things that are so important, Peggy, but I was just um, right before this, I was doing a, a program for law students in Georgia and they were asking me questions about the book. And I said that one of the things that was so meaningful is that there's such a, it, it paints a human picture of amazingly successful women who nothing was handed to them. And, you know, when, when you're young and you get to meet Justice Quince and or some of these other um, icons that are in the book, you think, oh, my God, look at them. They have it all They're, You know, they're smart. They're confident. They're beautiful. They're this, they're that. And then you read these stories and you realize there were a lot of barriers and a lot of challenges. And, you all, you know, everybody gets through them. Everybody has them. And the question is, you know, can you persevere and do you have the resilience? to get through them. And I think that that's such an important part of the story that you tell. Um, And then the other thing, and you touch on this a lot as well, with respect to the angels and mentors in your life, is that one of the things I said to the students today, when they were asking, well, what if they want to be a judge, you know, what should they do? And putting aside all the other parts to the answer, one of the things I talked about was how important a network is and a community of support And I stress that, but building a network is not all about, you know, who do you know who can help you, but remembering how important it is for you to help others, Uh, you know, at any age, at any age, that the building of a network is a two-way street. I think that's another part that we don't stress enough when we, you know, when we talk to each other. I think one of the important things that we really have to do when we are mentoring or even just talking to a group is to let them know that you are a real flesh and blood person and you have had your trials and your tribulations and that life has not been, you know, a bowl of cherries. And that's what I try to do when I talk to young people. I talk from elementary through, you know, law school. These are the kinds of challenges that I had to face, the same kind of challenges that you're facing. You may have a single parent, but that doesn't mean you still can't succeed. 
And even if your your single parent has an issue, there are other people in your community that are willing to help you. I think that's so important to keep our young people focused on their abilities and not what they don't have. I think so much of that too is just seeing, like you said, seeing someone else who is in that role and seeing someone do it, someone that that may have sat where you sat or you know, has gone through what, what you've gone through, it really helps to understand or to put that in perspective and really it makes it feel real. And I think that actually leads right into one of the questions that, that we wanted to ask you about the perception of fairness in the courts. And I know when you were first sworn in as Chief Justice of the Florida Supreme Court, you sought to address the perception of unequal treatment in the courts. And one of the things you said was that no one should come out of the court system feeling that they were treated unfairly. You might lose, but you shouldn't feel that you were treated unfairly. And I was wondering why you think that matters so much, which I the answer is obviously clear, but I think I would love to talk about why it matters so much. But how did you go about accomplishing that? And I think part of that and the way it, it relates to what we've been talking about is um, is walking into a courtroom and and seeing someone that might have a similar perspective as you do or someone that looks like you on the bench. Um, I think that having a, a diverse bench makes that perception a reality. It, it certainly is very important to have a diverse bench. I, I mean, diversity and ethnicity, diversity and gender, all of the categories, but not just the bench, but even the people around the bench. I mean, the, the bailiffs that are uh, in the courtrooms, uh, the court reporters that are in the courtroom, all of the, the, the entire uh, system has to be diverse. Because you walk, if you walk into any setting, and I don't know if you ever have, but I have on many occasions walked into a room and I was the only black person in the room. And rightly or wrongly, it's an uncomfortable feeling until you have, you know, moved around and and talked and, 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 you know, gone around the room. So if a person walks into a courtroom, Everyone does not look like them. Right away, they are feeling uncomfortable and, oh, this is not going to turn out well. But when you have some diversity around, when you allow people to present whatever, the opportunity to be heard, when you allow people to present their case and you have not prejudged it, as I said before, even when they lose, they feel like they had an opportunity. They feel like someone actually listened. And rightly or wrongly, when they see people who look like them, they feel like they're going to get a, a fair hearing. And, and it's just, it really is as simple as that. And it's so fundamental. And it really is fundamental. <laughs> and you also did so much to increase the education of the court system, the court staff, judges in these areas of diversity and inclusion. And I know there have been some changes to that recently. And without getting too political, which we like to steer clear of on this podcast, I'm just wondering how you think this impacts that goal of the perception of fairness in the courts when you when you don't when you take out that education piece. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those programs. Well, I really think it's a step backwards. And I, it is very troubling because, you know, our state is, gets more and more, our country gets more and more diverse every day. And it is troubling because people have to truly understand that we all have our hidden unconscious biases. There was a, a young man who went around back in the 90s, I believe, and he, he had this sort of comic act, but really wasn't comic, but he would do a skit where he presented the persona of many different ethnic groups and all of that. And you could see, and you would watch him and you would see 
your own hidden biases that you might have about Black people or Jewish people, because he covered all these different areas in the skit that he did. And even something as simple as that will make you think when you see it. You know, I may have said that about someone of that ethnic group. And there's so many studies that talk about our hidden biases. And we, we need to understand that we have them. Some people believe that they truly are colorblind and I don't have any prejudices. That's not true. We all have some prejudices. You know, I like cheddar cheese better than I like mozzarella. <laughs> so when you ask me about mozzarella and tomatoes, no, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> we have them, but we have to understand and accept it and learn how to deal in a world, a diverse world, and get over to the extent we possibly can those biases. And that's why. We need all of our judges. We need the, all of our other court personnel, uh, even people in, in other fields, to be educated on the fact that they need to be aware of what they're doing. And it's so important in, in the court system because we're, li- we're dealing with people's lives and property and money. And so we need to be aware of what we're doing and not unfairly burden a litigant based on our own internal perceptions. Because people from different ethnic groups, religious groups, racial groups do to some extent operate differently. And so we have to accept that and learn to deal with it. I just want to add, it's so important because what Peggy's answer showed is these are not political issues. You don't have to apologize for asking the question that maybe it's political because they're not political at all. This is nonpartisan, not political. The fact that other people try to make it so, we have to be careful about not falling into the into that little trap and say, oh, I better not touch that. Maybe it's a third rail. These are real important conversations to be had. We can't we can't remove diversity, equity, and inclusion from our, you know, from the conversation of what's needed in our profession and in our courts as well as in the whole rest of our workplaces and organizations. Well, it's a quintessential putting your head in the sand when as you said, Peggy, we all, we're constantly discriminating between one thing and another, choices that we have, things that we want, things that we don't want. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we all have, whether conscious or unconscious, biases and that drive our behavior. And it's really just bringing the sunlight to that so that we can understand one another and our own thinking. And be conscious of it. That's, that's what diversity, equity, and inclusion training is to make us conscious of those unconscious biases so that we can deal with them. Oh, I know, I, I know, I, I believe this, but this is this case. This is these people. I have to treat this case and not treat this person based on my own preconceptions. And so many of the of the judges that we've had the opportunity to speak with or about through this podcast, I think have talked about putting yourself into the shoes of the of the parties. And that's not a political <laughs> issue. That's just that's just being a human. Mm-hmm. Can we talk, Peggy, about public service? You committed essentially your entire career to public service. You were a hearing officer in D.C. in the early days. You went to the attorney general's office in Florida. You were first a judge on the second district court of appeals. And then of course, um, for 20 years on the Florida Supreme court, one could safely say that you definitely earned your place in the sunshine. You worked hard for your retirement and, um, and no one would begrudge you a certain life of leisure at this time in your life. And we know that you spent some time going on a cruise, which we'll talk about in a moment, but 
you got right back to work when you came back. Um, from what we can see, you volunteered as a poll watcher in the 2020 election. You joined the newly formed Conviction Integrity Unit in Florida, which takes a fresh look at potential wrongful convictions. And you went across the state making presentations on the potential impact of proposed legislation. And to Kathleen's point, we try not to be political, but um, I can think of no greater endeavor right now for someone in your position to do in the state of Florida. What has public service meant to you and how can we encourage more people, especially of those just entering the workforce, to consider public service? And I mean that in the broadest sense, certainly for lawyers, but also for non-lawyers. Public service to me is, is another way of giving back and thanking the community for what the community gave me. I think that so many people uh, finish college, finish uh, law school, finish whatever schools they go to, and they are focused on making money. Of course, I'm interested. I was interested in making money. I had to uh, pay for my apartment. I had my car, my all of those things. But I also felt it was necessary for me to try to lift the community, to lift individuals and the community, of course, as a whole. And that's what public service meant to me. When I was at the uh, hearing officer in Washington, D.C., what I heard was petitions by landlords and some by tenants, but petitions by landlords to increase rent and petitions by uh, renters sometimes to decrease the rent. And it was all based on what kind of services these people were getting. I mean, I, I, I... a landlord would want to increase the rent, say, $100 a month and come in with all kinds of bills and things. And then the tenants would come in and say, but look, I've had this rat problem in my apartment for two years and he's, he or she has done nothing about it. And so that was, I felt that I was helping both the landlord and the tenant and and trying to resolve these kinds of issues. What are you doing with this rent that is being paid by these tenants if you're not keeping up the property? That kind of thing. And so that was a way to uh, uh, I saw as serving the public. And I think all of the positions I, that I've had, the attorney general's office, I represented the state, but I represented the state to make sure that what was going on was done properly under the constitution and the laws of the state. And if I felt, uh, if I had an appeal, for example, that I was uh, prosecuting and I felt that the state did not have a good position, I would talk to the state attorney and say, we really don't have a good position in this case. Let's just drop this. You know, sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't, but I felt that that was the public service thing to do. Because I think we all truly are public servants when when you work for the government, or you should be. Those are the people who elect our, uh, the public elects the officials. The officials are the ones who get other people to work like me. And so I think we all owe an obligation to the public to do what is in the public interest, not in our own personal interest, not in our friends' interest, not in the interest of corporations, but the public interest. And so that's how I've tried to conduct my life. And that's, it's, I feel like there's no, I think the government lawyers uh, section of the Florida Bar has a slogan that says, no greater calling. And I think it's there's no greater calling than public service. Well, tell us a little bit about retirement. Has there been any surprises? Well, you know, I, uh, well, COVID, of course, was the biggest surprise of all. Oh, that was a surprise, <laughs> I was yes. retired <laughs> one year and then COVID struck. And so I went off on two big uh, cruises 
uh, before the COVID shut down. But COVID taught me that I cannot be satisfied watching TV, even reading, although I love to read, even cooking, which I'm beginning to like uh, a lot more than I did. (laughs) (laughs) There's hope for us then. (laughs) Those things are not enough to keep me going during the day. I have to have something else to focus on. And that's how I really got involved with analyzing legislation, analyzing a proposed constitutional amendments, uh, just and getting involved in the election cycle as a whole. I needed something more to be fulfilled and on boards. <laughs> uh, so I just felt like as long as I have the energy and my health allows that I have to continue to give back. So my retirement, my sister often tells me that you are busier in retirement than when you were actually working. <laughs> but uh, I just feel like I have to continue to give back. I, I, I am still a public servant at heart. So we were very excited to draft her to the Board of Lawyers Defending American Democracy. People are busy too. <laughs> yes, no doubt. Um, well, you don't do anything really on a small scale, Peggy. Um, you started your retirement um, and took a four-month cruise to 23 countries, 50 ports. And I think in total, it was 113 days. You then took a much shorter cruise in 2020, which was, I think, um, 75 days to Antarctica and South America just before um, the pandemic hit, um, as you alluded to before. What have you learned from your travels? And because we're so focused on this show about really seeing one another as human beings and engaging in, you know, constructive dialogue and discourse and not, you know, decamping. How do you think travel can, you know, open the mind and encourage better dialogue between people? I've learned a couple of things from traveling. One of them is that people are essentially the same all over the world. We want a good life for our families. We want our children uh, to have a good education and be able to succeed and take care of themselves. It really is amazing to me because no matter whether I went to a village where people still live in what we might consider to be primitive conditions, uh, to someone who you know has a, a fabulous house on the water, they still have the same wants and desires. No matter what color, no matter what ethnicity, the same wants and desires. And, 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 but I think that travel opens your eye, opens your eyes to the fact that no matter what you have, no matter where you go, that people will embrace you, people will uh, help you, people are willing to reach out no matter, you know, you go to a country, you don't even speak the language and someone sees that you're fumbling and and stumbling and trying to figure out something and will come up and try to help you, even though there is somewhat of a language barrier. So there's good all over the world. And uh, you see exploitation of people all over the world also. But I think it really can teach you that we are all the same kind of people, no matter what country you're in, no matter what color skin they have, uh, no matter what language they speak, that we are all essentially the same. And some people are going to have more than other people. And that's all right. 
but you should do what you can to help those who need that help. And that happens all over the world. What a beautiful landing spot for us to end this interview. Peggy, thank you very, very much. We're honored, delighted to have this conversation with you. What a joy. Thank you. It has been my pleasure to be here. Kathleen, as we close out this series uh, with women judges, I, I, I mean, we've learned a lot, but um, I'm so grateful that we got to close that out with, with oh, Peggy. I could have listened to her all day. I was just thinking like, what do we have? Can we ask her more questions? And I was watching the clock tick and I'm yeah. thinking, no, this is going too quickly. <laughs> yeah. What a lovely human mm-hmm. and just uh, such an emphasis on, on community and the really like broad conception of serving your community, both as a public servant and in her sorority. And as um, we didn't talk about it, but she's uh, always been quite active in her church community. And yeah, I, I appreciate it also that we got to talk about um, her father and the importance of dads out there. And that she just, yes, it, that was, that was really great. I'm, I mean, that was like a, a good example of um, that. You can't always plan the, the conversation down to the, down to an outline. Um, that was, that was wonderful to hear her talk about her father. And I think just watching her face as we talked about some of these different topics, she just lit up. She's someone that, and even about when we talked about retirement, she needed to get back out there and needed to be part of, part of her community and part of the world, really. So what a wonderful person. I feel so lucky that we have the opportunity through this podcast to meet people like her. Truly. Well, Kathleen, until next time. All right. Thank you. Keep looking for those silver linings. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to This Is My Silver Lining with us, your hosts, Ingrid Busson-Hall and Kathleen Merrigan. This show is edited and produced by the amazing John Core at Wayfair Recordings. And our original show art is by Alyssa Love. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you love hearing these inspirational stories, please follow, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please join us again next week when we'll be back with a new episode. We're always looking for silver linings. So if you have one you'd like to share, let us know. You can always find us on Instagram or on our website, thisismysilverlining.com. Be sure to check out the links and resources in our show notes. Have a great week. And until next time, keep finding those silver linings.